Hi, and welcome to the Data Wranglers, a conversation about the latest trends in data engineering, hot takes, and insights on the data industry. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hare. And I'm Joe Hellerstein. And today, we also welcome back Adam Wilson. Hi, Adam. Hey, guys. Uh, Great to be uh, back on the show. It's good to have you, man. I think we're handing the reins over to you for today, right? I know, I know. This is uh, this is quite the honor, and uh, I know that uh, on our recent episode with uh, DJ Patel, we we mentioned that there was exciting industry news that uh, Altrix had acquired Trifacta, and I really thought this would be a fun opportunity as we wrap up season one to talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial journey that started with you as founders, um, along with Sean Kendall. And I know that our listeners have often asked a little bit about the origin stories of the company. And uh, as they, many of them pursue their own entrepreneurial journeys, have asked questions about um, some of our lessons learned, tips, tricks, best experiences, worst nightmares, all the things that uh, anyone goes through who, who co-founds and starts a company. So I get the fun task today of turning the mic around and uh, asking you guys some questions um, as we uh, as we wrap the first season. Put us in the hot seat. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So uh, so this is a chance to maybe wind it all the way back to the campus research. So one of the things that obviously made Trifacta unique was its academic heritage and its roots in research at university. And so I, I'd love to hear uh, maybe Joe, starting with you, because, you know, this goes back to Potter's Wheel um, and some of the work that you did there. I'd love to maybe start off by hearing a bit about some of that early research uh, and then and then the connection to, you know, sort of how uh, over time it grew up and you got connected with Jeff and Sean. Yeah, um, I can go way, way, way back uh, to when I was in grad school, actually, at the University of Wisconsin, getting my PhD. Um, and, you know, as a young aspiring researcher, I would sit in my office and say things like, you know, what's the dumbest thing in software right now and how could I fix it? And my PhD work was in database systems. So, you know, the question I posed to myself was what bugs me the most about database systems? And the first thing that came up was, you know, if I ask them a question and it's a hard question to give an answer to, they just go away for a long time and they don't tell me anything. And then eventually they give me an answer. There's like no interaction. And this was at the time, mind you, so I'm dating myself quite a lot, where the Netscape Navigator browser had been launched to replace Mozilla. And the cool thing about Netscape Navigator as a browser was when your GIF files would come over the modem from the internet, it would do interleaved lines. So you'd see like the first line, the fourth line, the seventh line, rather than just top down line one, line two, line three. So you could get a little bit of a picture of the image as it loaded over your browser. And I wanted that for database queries. I wanted to get interactive responses, like early returns on my long running queries. So if I ask, you know, um, what is the sales by department? I want it to be like, well, so far it looks like the sales in the shoe department were up this much, but we're not really sure yet. So I was really interested in this idea of what I called online aggregation. And we wrote papers about that and built some systems and stuff. But I got interested in interacting with data. And I was looking for other examples where like rich interaction with data would be useful. And again, this is in the 90s. Um, and one of the ideas that was put in front of me by uh, another professor in old industry hand, a guy named Mike Carey, who had been working at BEA, was ETL. He said, look, there are these ETL scripts. They're super long running. They're complicated. They're often not quite right. Wouldn't it be cool if you built some kind of ETL tool? that was interactive and that gave early returns and allowed you to change the thing while it was running. 
And I thought, okay, that's cool. And I spoke with one of my star students at the time, a guy named Vijay Shankar Raman, who went on to IBM and Google over the years and has done great stuff. And he uh, and I worked together to build a tool called Potter's Wheel. And what Potter's Wheel was, was a scalable spreadsheet. So think sort of Microsoft Excel, but it can be on an infinitely large file. And as you kind of scroll with the scroll bar, you see example rows from this infinitely large file. Um, and you get example summaries of what's going on in the data and maybe some anomalies that we find as we sample through the data. And then we also got sort of a, a language of transformation that we built into the tool. So it would try to figure out what types were in your data and then it would let you transform the data in a variety of ways via sort of menu selection. And it was pretty cool. We wrote a paper about it. Um, it was open source. Um, and I had actually some um, uh, venture capitalists say that, you know, maybe it's time to upend the ETL industry in 2000. And I sort of, I had little, you know, I just had little interest in doing it at the time. Um, so then a bunch of decades, no, a decade passed. <laughs> Seems like I was going to say, you're not that old. <laughs> and, and I'm not that young. <laughs> So something like 10 years passed, though, and Berkeley, where I was a faculty member at that point, didn't really have uh, people who are interested in data visualization and user experience around data. And actually, academic human-computer interaction research was pretty new. Um, but finally, we got a wonderful guy named Manish Agrawala on the faculty, who I just think is tops. And he had a superstar student named Jeffrey Hare. And uh, I ended up on Jeff's thesis committee. I'm skipping Jeff's first advisor because the story gets too long. And I was on Jeff's thesis committee, and uh, this guy was too smart. I mean, I just I said, I got to work with this, with this guy. He's amazing. Maybe I can pitch him on my potter's wheel thing because I tried it out on another one of the grad students, Scott Clemmer, and he didn't seem interested. So I pitched it to Jeff. He said, hmm, that seems interesting. I'm going to go be a professor at Stanford now, but maybe, uh, maybe we'll figure out a way to work together. Yeah, so Jeff, that's that's a great segue. I'd love to like, what made you decide to throw in with Joe on this? Yeah, well, it turns out, yeah, I have my own uh, backstory here in that, you know, I've been working in data visualization um, on a number of projects and uh, particularly around social visualization, by which I mean, you have groups of people all coming to the same visualization and maybe trying to have a conversation in terms of sharing their insights or building up arguments, hypothesis and evidence chains, things like that. And one thing that was really recurring was like, wow, like even so-called clean data is full of problems, whether it's like unresolved entities or, um, you know, you know, there was an error in a join. So like timestamps didn't match up. So like cause and effect were reversed and like all sorts of data problems. And people were really good at pointing these out. Um, and that was on top of the fact that, you know, then I reflected, I'm like, gosh, and like all of my visualization projects, if I think back, I actually spent an inordinate amount of time just preparing the data. And by the time you get to visualization and modeling, it felt like you're just running downhill. I'm like, well, maybe, you know, having seen it through the eyes of my own users um, and, then, and then causing them to reflect on my own experience, like, we should really do something about it. And that's why um, talking with Joe and learning about Potter's Wheel really resonated. Um, and so then, you know, we were both lucky in that I went to Stanford um, and then an enterprising young student named Sean Kendall joined um, and we started chatting and he was really interested in this problem as well. He, uh, Sean had previously worked in like the intersection of databases and HCI with another Stanford colleague, Andreas Pepke, who collaborated with us on what then became Data Wrangler. And just a little bit, uh, the, the nuts and bolts of that, technically, we started with Potter's Wheel as a starting point. We're like, hey, we want this nice domain-specific language. What are all sort of the, the verbs and nouns by which we can manipulate data? But then let's turn that into an interactive visual experience as opposed to coding or as opposed to just picking commands out of a menu and then filling in dialogue boxes. 
And funny enough, like where we started was like, I remember trying to come up with a, a gesture language. Like, can I grab, you know, um, elements in a table, like selecting text and move them around or a call, et cetera. And it turns out that failed. And the reason why was all these gestures were ambiguous. Like if I select text in a column, well, it turns out there's probably like five to seven different things I might want to do with that text. Do I want to delete it? Do I want to extract it? Do I want to do something else? But importantly, it was five to seven, not like 500 or 5,000. And that really led us to come on this idea like, well, we could disambiguate that user input and then make recommendations. So really have this sort of recommender um, augmented experience of transforming data, all then realized in, in terms of statements in this underlying language. And that gave rise to this idea that we later wrote about more directly in a later paper on what we called predictive interaction, which is really like, can you form a representation that describes basically the, the, the rules of the game? Like what are the different moves you wanna make, whether that's with your data as in data cleaning and transformation or in other domains, but then use machine learning techniques as sort of a translation glue between you know, um, in, you know, intentions that a user expresses and then trying to map that down into what the actual computation should be. Um, and so that was really exciting to me from uh, both a systems and interaction design standpoint. And so um, beyond the, the real practical need to clean data, I thought that was really interesting in terms of our intellectual journey as well. Yeah, I was totally blown away by that when I saw it for the first time. It just seemed, it was just unlike anything I'd ever seen before in terms of that really immersive experience that um, Trifacta was was creating from from the beginning. Um, but so, so that was... Uh, quite a, an impressive feat. This, this shocking idea that maybe data cleaning could, could even be a little bit fun. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say this whole idea, which I thought was just brilliant, um, goes beyond data cleaning. I mean, it's really about a new way to think about interacting with computers. Uh, and I can't like overemphasize that. So we've had various forms of interacting with computers where you're like you're typing commands or you're choosing commands from a menu. And then we have things like uh, programming by example. So think of FlashFill in Microsoft Excel. Actually, it's in Trifecta has a version of this where you give examples of the outputs you want, right? And then they figure out um, kind of what from the examples are uh, the program should do. There's also something called programming by demonstration where you sort of interact with the screen in a way that you want the computer to do the thing. So you're like showing the computer literally what to do. This is none of those things. So the idea here is I'm going to, highlight things that interest me, and in this case, by clicking. Um, so it could be a bar chart. It could be a bar in a bar chart. It could be a piece of text in a cell. It could be the header of a column. It could be a summarization of a set of data. But I clicked on some stuff, and you should take the hint, computer, as to what I'm interested in. Because you know what? Specifying everything's annoying. I'm just going to give you some hints as to what I'm interested in. You come back to me with suggestions on what I might actually want to do. And by the way, I'd like to see those suggestions in a way that I can quickly choose between them. So it's not, I don't want you to come back to me with 17 different C programs that I have to read. That's no use at all. I want you to come back to me with very easy to sort of scan choices. So this idea that I just interact with stuff and the computer comes back with suggestions of what I might want is a, it's a partnership between human intelligence and computer intelligence baked into a user experience. And it's really cool. And it really came out of that first research paper. Yeah, uh, that's, I mean, uh, again, just uh, amazing, um, you know, to sort of think about some of these early ideas that both of you were playing with and, you know, how it's really changed the way, you know, people do interact with data in the industry. Um, you, know, you see a lot of these ideas showing up in, in a variety of different tools and technologies now. And 
um, to really kind of trace it back to some, some of these early uh, experiments and ideas is, uh, is super fun. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, I want to actually step back for a second before we talk too much about Trifacta, though, and say both of you being in academia made a decision then to actually start a real company. Um, so I know the technology was super interesting and the research space uh, was super interesting, but what caused that leap? What, what caused you to say, this is interesting enough, this is important enough, this is a big enough opportunity that we're going to take time away from our careers and, and actually go do some fundraising and hire some people and all of the things that, uh, that are all about company building? What was that? Well, I, I can give my, my, my two short answers. So the first is, having been involved with lots of open source projects, particularly around visualization tools, I saw that as a really useful way of getting technology out into people's hands. But that tends to work really well for like APIs and, and software libraries. For something that was this rich and interactive and would have to, to really be effective, needs to you know, integrate with you know, organizations' data stores. It just seemed like if we really wanted to realize the promise of the work that we'd started, uh, a company was the, 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 maybe the most effective way, way to do that. And so that's the official answer. Uh, the, the real answer was um, Joe and Sean uh, were already pretty gung-ho about this direction. And it's just been such a joy to work with them that they're like, Jeff, do you want to join us? You know, um, I was like, of course, <laughs> like, there's no way I'm going to, um, um, you know, not jump in uh, and keep working uh, with these great people. Awesome. And Joe, for you? Well, I, I will give credit to Sean as the catalyzing force. I mean, he was graduating from Stanford. He wanted to do a company. He said, I'm going to go do a company. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to miss this train. This sounds great. You know, this was the first project. And by then I'd been a professor for some 15 years. It was the first thing where I saw a clear path to market. I mean, this was a useful artifact. We could show people they would go use it and solve their problems and thank us. Um, and there were lots and lots of people using the open source data wrangler uh, product. I think we had tens of thousands of uh, unique IPs who'd come to the site and worked with it. So it seemed like a good bet also. Mm -hmm. um, but I do remember distinctly that, you know, this is very off career path for me. And I come from a family of academics. So uh, <laughs> it was off career path for, for sort of my roots. Um, we met with our lawyers with first meeting with lawyers uh, to found the company. And I remember saying to the lawyer, like, yes, I'm, I'm going to be the CEO, but um, I don't, I don't plan to be a businessman when I grow up. You know, that's not one of my goals. And he sort of looked at me like, are you crazy? Uh, <laughs> but I'll take your check, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think both for Jeff and me, um, this idea of professor-entrepreneur uh, jointly was kind of what we were looking at. And there's role models for that. I mean, we are not alone in doing that. And there's more and more folks like us now. But it's, it's, it's not a leaving of research. It's the bringing research to market um, and then going back. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that another kind of aspect that, that made this unique was, if I'm not mistaken, this was both first time, you know, founders. I mean, I know you'd been involved with companies and open source projects and lots of folks over the years, but, but this was really, you know, first time founders striking out on your own to do it. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I'd been a sort of nominal co-founder in one of Mike Stonebreaker's companies yeah. uh, back when I was a junior faculty member, N notably his least successful company from which I, I learned a lot of lessons, <laughs> called Cohera. It was, a data, it was a data federation company. Data federation is a really hard market. And we got crushed by Informatica, which I believe is a company you're familiar with, Adam, from many years working there. Absolutely. So, so what was the toughest part about making that transition from 
you know, professor to entrepreneur, like what were some of the things in the first few years that, that were just, you know, harder than you expected where you were maybe some, some tough lessons learned is, is anything jumped to mind in those, in those, maybe even just in that first year, right. Of, it's so formative. Two things stand out to me. So one is, you know, we, we chatted a lot, um, you know, with different investors, but particularly with other entrepreneurs, including, you know, academics turned entrepreneurs. Um, so we were, we knew going in that recruiting was a huge piece of the job, but I still think I underestimated that by like a, a factor of two to three. It was, you know, I was excited to get, you know, working on, on building, designing product. And that was fun, but almost all of my waking hours, you know, were, were actually dedicated towards recruiting in one form or another, really building up the organization. And so obviously critically important. Um, I knew it was going to take up a huge amount of time, but it was even more, but obviously, I mean, you're setting both, you know, kind of the, the capabilities of the organization, but also the culture. So it is one of the most important things you can do. Uh, the second one is, um, sales. I learned, I, I think Joe, I will agree with this. Like, um, I'll just go and say it. We're terrible at sales. <laughs> Joe and I. Um, coming from academics, actually, there's a lot of things that relate to marketing. Like marketing made a lot of sense to me, not maybe all the ins and outs, but in terms of general strategy. Uh, but, but sales is something else. So I actually really came to appreciate good salespeople in a way that I hadn't before, uh, both in terms of their tenacity, as you might expect, but also just their people skills. And I don't just mean that in terms of like being conversational, but the way they'll map out uh, an organization and understand the paths of influence. It's really some amazing practitioner social science um, that I saw good salespeople do. And so I gained an appreciation for that and, and, and further cemented that like, well, these people have a skill, but also a passion uh, that I lack. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's so true. And I think that's, that's one of those things that you hear often from founders who are more, you know, tend to be more product centric is, you know, at some point this starts to be about commerce and about those feedback loops and, you know, getting that input early is so, so important where you're, you're, you're really getting knocked around and figuring out kind of what is, what is minimally viable, which everybody talks a lot mm -hmm. about, but, but also, you know, at some point, you know, when do you get to a point where you start to see some of the go-to-market fit pieces as well, not just the product market fit pieces. So I think that's very, very uh, astute. I definitely have to add a, a shout out to one of our first executive hires, Wei Zhang, who was really like sort of the, the adult in the room, both getting us disciplined about product. Um, and while she wasn't a salesperson, still also helping us be um, more, more level-eyed about finding that product market fit um, that you're, you're um, you know, mentioning. Yeah. And, and, and Joe, what about you? Um, thoughts on the tough stuff in year one? Yeah, well, uh, definitely agree with Jeff on the, I, I knew how to do marketing, but not to do sales. That's spot on. Uh, the second one, you know, it was more year two really than year one was um, the organizational stuff about running uh, running a team that's bigger than six graduate students, you know, which is kind of a <laughs> run up to then. You get to 30, 40 people and you need to have some structure in your organization. People don't, uh, people trust each other implicitly at some scale. And as you get past that scale, you have to put in structure. Uh, and what was weird to watch the wheels begin to fall off the uh, org a little bit as we got to like 25, 30, people suddenly wondered like, what's happening behind those closed doors? What are you talking about back there? You know, it's like same stuff we were talking about last week. I, I don't know what, you know, why you're worried, but communication had to be more transparent um, and it had to roll down, even though it was a small team still, you had to make sure that like, here's how we make sure everyone's in the know. Here's how we make sure everybody has a voice. 
Um, it's not going to happen in ad hoc ways. And again, like this was a learning uh, to respect that stuff about, I don't want to grow up and be a businessman. It's like, well, maybe I don't want to grow up and be a businessman because it's hard. You know, like this stuff is actually, you know, it, I, I suddenly understand what they're teaching you at business school is not, you know, it's not a bunch of bunkum. This stuff really matters. Yeah, I think I think that, you know, uh, even for me, when I came in was, you know, it, it was sort of apparent that, you know, this this old adage that like every time you double the company, everything breaks. <laughs> and a lot of that is because there needs to be more specialization. There needs to be changes to org design. There needs to be new types of leadership. There needs to be, I mean, there's all these things, new systems and processes to support that growth and trying to figure out sort of in what measure, to what degree and extent, and to get the organization to see this as a positive evolution, you know, rather than a distraction or, or change that would, you know, create, you know, uh, barriers to, you know, information and barriers to career growth and all those other things, which, you know, especially when you're really small and, everybody's involved in everything in the beginning and you've got all these amazing generalists who can kind of like float naturally between four different jobs all in the same day you know when you get to that point where things start to click and you start bringing in a lot of those specialists um, that's when it creates some tension you know inside inside the company and between a lot of the people and that's uh, uh that's hard stuff to to, to manage through um, certainly um i guess as we sort of think a little bit about you know kind of as things start to to click and as things start to to grow up, I'd love to hear about maybe an an aha moment or two early on that gave you confidence that like like hey we're really onto something here and and this is you know a big opportunity and and can have you know real world impact. Uh, maybe uh, start with you on that, Joe. You know, I for better or worse, I didn't need that aha moment with this one. Like that happened before the company was founded. It happened looking at the demos that Sean was built at Stanford. Um, I've been a firm believer in this product since like day one, uh, just because it's obviously so much better than the stuff that's out there. And I've used those things. Like I know what it's like to wrangle data in Python. It's it's a waste of time, even if you know how to do it. And the, the feedback loop you get is terrible because you're just writing code. Like. People who wrangle data in a Python Jupyter notebook are wasting their time. And it's sort of, I, I know that. So like this tool to me was magic from the beginning and I knew there'd be a market for it mm -hmm. because um, I just, it was just self-evident to me. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, like you got to do your homework and figure out, well, to get to product market fit, it's not enough to believe. You have to, you have to get the thing, the right shape for the right people. And so that, that was a process, but I didn't need an aha moment after the research and Jeff, for you, um, similar or were there were there moments along the way that stood out? Yeah, it's similar. And in, in terms of the big picture, I didn't, you know, I didn't need an epiphany uh, to believe it. I think we had that, um, you know, coming out of, out of the research, as Joe said. Um, but I, I completely agree on the, you know, that the jigsaw puzzle of product market fit. I mean, I, I went back to some of our old notes. I mean, we had so many ideas um, of things, you know, and of which many of them are now in the product, some that aren't. And then just figuring out the prioritization, both in terms of, okay, well, how much effort's involved in doing this, but more importantly, what is the set of organizations that are gonna benefit from this most? And I remember having some tough conversations early on with people who were really excited about what we were doing, but it's like, oh, but do you have support for standardization? Like we have like 30,000 company names, but there's really only like 2000 companies. Can you help me clean that up? And we're like, 
my researcher hat is like, yes, I have lots of ideas and we could do this. And I'm like, oh, but that's a research project. Like, can I give you something now? No. Right. And later, of course, we did release standardization. It was a, a product that I helped work on and it was really fun to do. Um, so, so those things were really enlightening and really, you know, especially coming from a user-centered design background, um, really going through that process. And it wasn't easy. I mean, it, it, it wasn't just, oh, go interview some people. We really had to go through some painful um, sales cycles, some, some where people bought on the promise of the software and our roadmap and other cases where they said, come back to us in six months, there's come back to us in a year. And so for me, it was really just learning from that process and then feeling really good when we got to a point where some of those frictions had clearly given way. Of course, you then discover new frictions. That's natural. Sure. Um, but there's just some of the validation moments. I remember when um, we, we made the deal with Google to be OEM'd as like the data transformation solution for Google Cloud. That was much later in the journey, but it was one of those things where like, yeah, we have at least a minimal set of things that this is really useful to a broad base of people. And so I wouldn't say that was aha, but that was extremely rewarding to realize that we had at least gotten to that point. And uh, for, for those entrepreneurs out there that are just starting up, I think one of the questions that I get asked quite a bit, and I'd love to hear your perspective on is the fundraising piece. So kind of at what point did you realize, okay, it's time to go raise capital? And, and I guess, what were some lessons from that early process, kind of seed, series A, series B, um, just any, any advice you have for the listeners out there that are uh, in, in that phase of their existence and, and wrestling with some of those questions. So I used to answer this by saying, well, we had an unfair advantage walking off campus at Stanford and Berkeley in fundraising. So it was easy for us to get access to venture funds. But of course, at least as of filming today, getting venture funds is easy for like lots of technologists now. So I think it's actually pretty comparable, which is, okay, you could go raise money and start a company if you, you know, have some reasonable ideas and some skills who do you want to raise money from and are they going to help you? Um, and do you want them to help you? you know, are you just looking for a check or are you looking for expertise and, and help with all the things you're going to need to do to build your company? So, you know, you certainly don't want an investor who's going to be destructive. And I have not firsthand, but secondhand stories about that. Then you want to decide, do you want to be hand in hand with your investor? Or do you want them to leave you alone? Uh, that's, I mean, so, so true. Just trying to really think through, you know, especially initially, there's such a uh, a rush to try to get, you know, get to a term sheet or get people interested. But then if you're in the position of, of having multiple investors uh, chase you, like really thinking through like, okay, what is this relationship going to be? Because in many cases, it's not, you got to think this could be a 10 year, you know, marriage of sorts. And, uh, you know, you better, uh, you better really like the collaboration and really respect the advice and think through kind of what you want to get out of that, because it's not, there's a tendency to focus on the near term. How do we get, how do we get money in the door so we can get going on our idea? Um, but ultimately, um, you know, in many cases, uh, you know, these are the average time to IPO these days you know, for companies that are lucky enough to make it that far is like somewhere between, you know, 12 and 13 years. Um, and people, I think, don't realize that, um, you know, that, you know, and, and even the average time to acquisition often, you know, there's tends to be a, some that happen very quickly before they get too far along um, uh, because it's more of a technology uh, acquisition. But even for the ones that have some amount of commercial success, you know, that could be six, seven, eight years in our case, you know, almost nine or roughly nine. So, um, you know, these are these are long term relationships for sure. So let's let's talk for a second about the early beachhead for the business. Um, so, you know, big data, 
um, at the time the company was founded um, was where everything was uh, buzzing uh, in the market, both in terms of the technology as well as what investors were uh, chasing. Um, and it was a you know a bit of a phenomenon as everyone was starting to talk about data lakes and and you know all of that. I'm I'm curious how how you guys thought about um, market entry, um, how you thought about you know some of those you know early problems that you were solving at scale. Um, I'd love to hear hear a little bit about um, you know some of the the choices that were made to commercialize and head in that direction. I'll just note that I think the timing was really opportune. Um, in creating sort of a, a, a safe harbor or safe fish harbor in which to start to grow a company. Um, we knew that we wanted to do more than just, you know, those initial, you know, Hadoop vendors, for example, in terms of we had you know, much bigger aspirations in terms of platforms and where what we were doing um, should run. But that, that nascent ecosystem created a place where there was business um, to, to help build up a company, but where some of the bigger players weren't um, heavily invested. Um, and so, Fortunately, I think we also architected the software in a way with growth in mind, so that knowing that we would need to pivot to the cloud um, and be able to run on um, a variety of different platforms in the future. And so I think that mix of having that nice um, sandbox, if you will, to, to start in, um, but with an eye towards you know um, growing beyond that, I you know I'd like to think served us well. Yeah, I, I view that a little bit more of a mixed lens, Jeff. It's kind of mm. interesting. I'm, I, I'm glad to hear your rosy version of the story. Um, but the way I would, you know, I tell the story is um, it's really fun to do these side by side. Um, you know, we started in 2012 and we went and talked to a bunch of customers and we said, hey, we're going to build this new thing. It's going to be awesome. Um, should we put it on the cloud or should we put it on one of these big data platforms everyone's excited about? And to a, you know, to a person, these people said, don't put it on the cloud. Nobody puts data in the cloud. We would never trust the cloud for our, you know, our corporate business. And so in 2012, we said, okay, so we won't do the cloud thing. We'll do the big data thing. Um, but, you know, as, as you alluded to, Jeff, we, we built this product so it could run lots of ways. Um, we could talk about that maybe, about how we future-proofed it. And that architecturally was true. But then we set out and built partnerships and built a business around selling to the big data market. And that market, you know, did not do as well as everyone who has invested in it had hoped. And we spent a bunch of years there and we built a sales process around the customers of the big data products, platforms. Those customers typically were on-premises, very large organizations. So we ended up building a business. Adam, really, you built this business of a sales team that knew how to sell to the likes of JP Morgan and... Um, major pharma, you know, like we were selling to banks of pharma mostly. So people would envy this list of customers and the checks that they wrote were also quite awesome. But servicing them was a misery. As we all know now, like SaaS in the cloud is just so much easier. You got one version of the product and all the customers have to use the version that's currently shipping. Um, and, you know, if they don't like it, they can leave pretty much, you know, whereas with these big customers who write you a big check, you are, you are at the, you know, at the service of the Lord, uh, and you pretty much have to keep them happy or you lose you know, a major fraction of your revenue. Um, and so we built this traditional enterprise business. And I think transitioning away from that to the cloud was a challenge. It was hard. Architecture was great. When we went to build the Google product, you know, we set a team of folks off to do it, and they were able to do it in a short number of months, actually. Um, but retooling the business was a process. Uh, Adam, you may have uh, more to say about that, but I think it's a, it's a lesson for entrepreneurs that like 
your initial set of partners and the platforms that you run on and the customers you, you cater to will shape your business. And it's very hard to change. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to be super deliberate about all of that. And um, again, I think in the early days, sometimes you're in such a rush to, uh, to get to market and to, you know, get validated, you know, by big partners or, you know, by through, you know, establishing channels or um, just closing deals with big logos. And, um, you know, the, 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 you know, people talk a lot about, you know, be careful who your first customers are, mm-hmm. you know, and that's uh, for good or for bad. Uh, and I think that a lot of times um, when you're lucky enough to, to be able to sell to the Fortune 500 Global 2000 right out of the chute, um, there's a ton of benefit to that, but there's also a lot of cost to that um, because they will be demanding and they will, if, if you're not careful, um, you know, take your roadmap in directions that perhaps start to become more idiosyncratic for a very specialized group of, of customers, which if that's what you're doing, if you're building a vertical solution or you're building a solution for that specific niche, great. Um, but, you know, if you're trying to build something that's more horizontal, um, you know, that can also you know, create challenges, which is like, how do, how do I balance, you know, all of you know the needs of these big customers who, who are going to push and push, um, and who have very, um, high bar in terms of what can get deployed and how it gets deployed and to whom it gets deployed. And so that's why I think you see so many companies start in the SMB and mid market, you know, where, you know, some of those requirements are, are not as uh, challenging and you're able to kind of get feedback a little faster you're able to kind of prove things in a bit of a different way at scale and then, you know, try to make it more enterprise grade over time, which is no small feat. You know, I think a lot of companies hit their heads when they realize they have to sell to the bigger organizations and never really figure out how to do that. At the same time, those that start that way as, as we did, you know, then sort of decomplexifying, you know, the business in some sense and making it easier um, to sell to people who don't have humongous, you know, IT organizations and, um, you know, a lot of governance and controls and, you know, really thinking about like, okay, how are their needs fundamentally different and how do we make this a solution that works for them too, um, you know, creates its own set of challenges. Um, so I think, you know, we kind of all live through all of that, um, mm-hmm. you know, as we not only changed, you know, some of the deployment, but also, the go-to-market motion around that, and and even thought differently about the different you know segments of the market that we wanted to service with a solution that was more SaaS-based, um, you know, over time. So, I will say, I mean, and this is very much to the credit of your leadership, Adam, that there there aren't a lot of examples of companies that successfully turn the corner from being on-prem vendors to being basically um, all SaaS vendors, like Trifacta is. Uh, and part of that was Google adopting us and dragging us through it, right? Because I think mm-hmm. had we not had that deal, we would have been less aggressive right. about letting go of our... I mean, we turned down, as you know, uh, we, we shut down some very big deals with some very big customers and said, sorry, we're not going to do it anymore. You can keep, you can take your check back. Right. We're going to the cloud. That was bold, um, you know, but it was what had to happen. But I think the Google thing gave us the confidence to do it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's doable. It's just hard. Yeah. But, but yeah, I'm proud. I'm proud that we lived through two different kinds of eras uh, of computing at some level. Yeah. Some, somebody asked me once and, and I described Trifacta as sort of doing two startups in one. I mean, the, what we did was, was pretty consistent, but you know, kind of for who and how um, a lot of that changed um, pretty dramatically over time. And I think, you know, for me, it was that burn the boats moment where, you know, 
four or five years ago, we started doing things in the cloud. But as, to your point, Joe, you know, the cloud wasn't a foregone conclusion. You know, analytic data was very stubbornly on-prem, especially for the big enterprises. Um, and only when Snowflake and BigQuery and, you know, some of these um, new technologies kind of broke um, and, and really kind of cracked into those larger enterprises did you start to see that bit flip. But it, it was not early. And, um, you know, so we sort of had two, you know, again, two startups inside of one in some sense. And that for me, that moment was, you know, when we, we said, okay, we know we have the technology to do this, but now we're going to actually exclusively do it and we're going to burn the boats and we're going to, you know, not, not pay our people on on on-prem deals. We're not going to give them quota credit for on-prem deals. We're going to continue to service those customers that have existing licenses with us. And so that's, you know, we'll make sure they're, well taken care of, but at the same time, our future is in the cloud and that's how we're going to invest. That's how we're going to message and position and we're all in. And anybody who's not ready for that or uh, is not aligned to that, um, you know, then this is a good time to, you know, to reset a little bit. And, you know, and there were some people who jumped up and down and were super excited about the focus and the clarity and the, the transition. And there were definitely others who said, hey, I, you know, I'm not sure if that's for me. Um, and that was, uh, that was a super, like a gut check moment, I think for all of us, you know, as an organization and certainly proud of the team and the resilience that everyone demonstrated, you know, through that shift. So, yeah. Hey, um, Adam, I'm going to take the reins and, and, uh, ask a question. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to shift back a little bit to the design and product design and technology. So Jeff, mm-hmm. um, we talked earlier in the podcast about predictive interaction and how it was like this radical new interaction model that we invented. Um, but increasingly, the product over the years included a lot more traditional forms of interaction. So how did that happen and why? Mm. Well, there's a lot of different things going on there. I mean, I think part of it is there's traditional components. Like I, one of the things that I liked early on that we did in Trifecta was uh, start bringing in more and more visualization. And so that wasn't just these little bars that say, you know, they're super useful. It's like, okay, I think this column is a number. Here's all the, the percentage of things that parses numbers. Here's the percentage that doesn't. Here's the missing data. Um, so those little guides. Um, but then unlike other like exploratory vendors, you know, like Tableau, we had a lot of visualizations that were specific to data transformation and data cleaning. So a lot of automated visualization that would profile your data. Um, and so then there was like an interesting design challenge there, which is like, okay, well, we can do this as output can we turn these visualizations into input? Um, you know, can I, can I interact with the, the chart? And then what are the transformations that make sense? Whether that's, you know, filtering might be one obvious one based on what's selecting, but are there other transformations as well? And so we have these different pressures on like, you know, as you have this core language and these recommendations around it, well, then things start to grow. How do you maintain that consistency? That's one design problem. But another one that we knew about, you know, all the way back in the research, but I think, you know, going to market really forced us to double down on is like, hey, a lot of the times you can, you know, demonstrate something, you can get a recommendation that's very close to what you want, but there's a lot of different parameters and it's some of them, you know, there's an exponential space of of potential parameter combinations and you're not always going to get that right. So even from day one, you always have to have these um, disambiguating interactions. And so to do that right, you end end up creating the UI basically by which you could do everything yourself if you wanted to. Or you can let the predictive interaction fill out that that you know, dialogue, as it were, you know, as, as much as it can, and then you can go in and adjust. 
Um, and part of that is you may not even know, but that adjustment allows you to experiment a bit. Oh, what does that parameter do? What does that parameter do? And so it wasn't an either or, but it really meant like really thinking through a coherent interface design all of its own. And then thinking about how these predictive elements be basically become a sort of collaborator in your use of that. And so, well, I think that was part of the vision. That's not where we focused because that wasn't where the, the research edge was and the academic work. And so I thought it was really fascinating that as we went into developing the product, like, yes, we needed to make the predictions better. Yes, we were hiring machine learning engineers, all of those intelligences, you know, that had to improve. But we were doing just as much, if not more work on constantly improving the UI and making sure like, okay, this is one model, it's working, but is it the best? I mean, Joe, you might remember, we had this is never ending discussion of like, what is the right object model? Not just in terms of like the database tables or whatever, but the object model in terms of the user experience of thinking about data sets, transformations of those data sets, the outputs of those transformations, and they can be versioned. The scripts can be versioned. The data outputs can be versioned. How do you manage all of that? And we had ideas and they were constantly being challenged and updating. That was the conversation that never ended um, because it's just a really challenging um, subject. And I think we, we continued to improve, but who knows? I'm sure there's room for further improvement down the road. Yeah. I, I took a bunch of stuff away from what you said there and from the experience that maybe I can try to distill. You know, one of them was this idea that you probably need affordances for people to do stuff by hand, even if you have an AI assisted tool. Absolutely. I mean, I can't, let me say it again, like AI is not enough. You need a user interface also, because the AI is going to get it wrong sometimes. And pretty much the interface you're going to have to build is going to have, it's like a, it's like an electric bike. Like you still have to be able to pedal it when the motor, when the battery runs out, you know, uh, there's just going to be times where you're going to have to do it by hand, uh, which means it probably has to be full featured by hand. Yeah. I think somewhere Steve Jobs is smiling on your, your bicycle metaphor. Well done. Yeah, it's the bicycle for the mind. Now we've got an electric bicycle for the mind. Yeah, there you um, go. So that one was to me like a bit of a, a bit of an epiphany. And we, you know, when I talk about building an interface that connects human intelligence to machine intelligence, Lots of people in AI are thinking about this now, and they have to get to this point that we went through, which is like, oh, right, the human intelligence thing needs the affordances to do its job on its own because the AI is going to screw up. Inevitably, it could be 95% good, 5% of the time could take up 20, you know, 80% of your life. So that stuff all had to happen, which meant that one day our intelligent tool got a menu bar. <laughs> you know, like it got all these traditional interfaces. Uh, it had an oh, icon. a toolbar to be fair, but yeah. <laughs> I think in Microsoft we call it a ribbon. I don't think if we're allowed to have a ribbon. I think that's trademarked somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, that was, it was a little bit humbling as a researcher because, you know, you're like, oh, I have this cool new interaction model that's going to take over the world. You're like, well, when it works, it's great. And when it doesn't work, there's other interaction models people have figured out. And you should have those too. Another one was a flow view. You know, the idea that I, I want to see my program as a set of boxes with arrows. I mean, that was the enemy when we started this company. That's what Informatica did. You know, and we're like, hey, that's, that's no better than programming at the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, at least for authoring, it's not a great deal better than programming at the keyboard. But for viewing your program, it's actually quite nice. Yeah, I think I think that 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 insight that the authoring UI and then sort of the the monitoring or an assessment UI um, be different makes a lot of sense. And I also note too, like when we were going flows, it was trying to make sense of um, not just one script, but how a collection of transformation scripts or recipes were being orchestrated. Um, whereas like the, the details of, of an individual transformation still ended up being much more about directly seeing um, the effects of steps on, on a, a sample of a table. And so we definitely, uh, I think one other um, 
thing we want to you know, make sure that, that people realize that we thought was really important was um, having that visceral experience of the data. So instead of just thinking about this as a set of operations, again, divorced from your data, really being able to see the data, have that inform what needs to be done, and directly being able to see visually what the effect of these transforms are. To me, that was really the um, the, kind of the, the magic and what allowed people to, to really advance their transformation work. Yeah. I mean, you guys were pretty consistent from the beginning about this idea of see for yourself, help yourself, um, but also about the idea that context matters and human in the loop is important. Um, and you know, yeah, yes, we're going to, you know, curate, curate a corpus of usage data that can make recommendations and suggestions and help really automate or speed up complicated things, but recognizing that you won't be able to do that completely. And, uh, and it was really important that, that people get eyes on data early in the process and, um, uh, and interact with it uh, in that visceral way that you're describing. And so, I mean, that's something that always, you know, stuck with me you know, from even the very first meetings that we had and some of the early presentations that uh, um, that you guys delivered. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious as you think about that and, and now as you think about the data market too, because I think one of the ahas that we had was just thinking about kind of that long tail nature of the market and thinking about things like extensibility and thinking about ways to open up the experience so that, it, you know, that it, you know, people who wanted to write a little bit of code could Talk a little bit about sort of your thoughts there and in terms of the evolution of what maybe started a bit more as a no-code solution to becoming a, a, also a low-code solution um, that still embraced a lot of these principles. I mean, this has been my, you know, that was my sort of my parting chapter at Trifacta was to try to lead the effort to make sure that we were meeting coders where they lived better. Um, I think we started out with a tool where we really you know, I think Jeff and I were so inspired by Tableau uh, and the invention that went on at Stanford that led to Tableau. And I think we thought that our, our journey would be similar to theirs. But I feel like data wrangling is, is such a more specification heavy task that it became clear that some folks that we should be working with are going to want to write code and they're going to want to live in a world of code. And we didn't, I think, get that right at the beginning. So we've been spending a lot of time over the last couple of years worrying about things like how do we share snippets of trifecta goodness on Stack Overflow? What does copy pasta look like for visual tools? You know, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So we need to have a text representation. Okay. And once we have a text representation, it could be on Stack Overflow, it could be in Git, it could be, you know, lots of places that people like to put their text because um, that's a great lingua franca for interchange. So embracing text was to me like a really key change that we needed to introduce into the, into the product as it existed two years ago. Um, and then another one was um, just the polyglot nature of the world. And that's when we saw from the early days at Stanford. I think when Sean first built Data Wrangler, it would emit your choice of JavaScript, Python, or SQL. Or MapReduce, actually, right? By the end. Yeah, we, uh, at the end we had MapReduce as well. Yeah. Yeah. But by the time the product was in market, you know, it was like a, a big lift to make sure we were compatible with all the different versions of Hadoop. And we went from pig to spark over time and yeah, to data flow, to data flow over at Google. And what was happening in the market a year and a half ago, two years ago was Python and SQL were back, back from the dead, right? Like they'd been in the research project and they were gone from the product. Uh, so getting getting some of that back in the product was another big push. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens now that it's in the hands of Alteryx, which has a nice big Tableau-esque user base. Um, do they 
you know, does the trifecta product at Alteryx pursue these data uh, scientists and data engineers, or does it actually exploit more the Tableau users and their graphical uh, proclivities. So I'll be curious to watch that. Yeah. Well, this is interesting because there's at least like two things that, that jump out at me. So one is just sometimes the gap between architecture. So what have you done to future-proof your software versus what's the actual interface design and implementation work that you have in place to leverage what that architecture allows. And what's funny is that we went back and forth. If you remember like, you know, we had a very visual research project, very early iterations of Trifacta were actually much more code heavy. And it was actually, and this is the thing, like your audience changes over time as you figure out product market fit. We had that sort of, you know, we were going to people who were more line of business analysts and they're like, I don't want to see this stuff. It's like, give me that, you know, pseudo natural language or make it all visual. Um, but then later, you know, especially with the move to the cloud and a, a much more focus um, on data engineering as sort of a nascent discipline that now had a lot of definition around it. These are a lot of code comfortable people. The pendulum had totally swung. And so like, all of that, you know, investment that we hadn't put in in the previous years and making the fact that we do actually have an entire code-based product underneath this nice UI that wasn't apparent to people. We didn't have the, you know, um, all of the, the the pieces in place to really leverage that. Um, um, and that we've made progress. And I'd, I'd be curious to see, you know, how that progress um, continues going forward. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, 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 um, I can, uh, say that, you know, having, uh, you know, been in some of the early conversations, there's a lot of focus on, trying to take a lot of the goodness that I think Ultrix has created, you know, in the line of business with analysts who are, you know, living in data every day um, and to marry that to what we've really started championing with the data engineering uh, crowd and, and recognizing that it really is a collaboration between those personas mm -hmm. that, that ultimately, you know, the, the winner is probably, or, you know, the one that really figures out how to, you know, provide that level of collaborative curation at scale in enterprises where you can govern, but at the same time, self-service is still possible and those things are not diametrically opposed to one another. And uh, so I think that's going to be a lot of fun, um, you know, working on that over the next few years and, um, you know, trying to create um, the, the better together story, which I know will be so powerful. So absolutely. Um, with that, I know we're kind of coming and we could talk for hours and hours. I mean, this is always so much fun. Um, and I guess as uh you know, as we wrap up this season, um, which has been just a, a really exciting and, and successful season for the podcast and, and a lot of fun to put together, I really uh, want to say thanks to both of you um, and, uh, you know, both personally and professionally. Um, this has been uh, uh, really the uh, highlight of my career to get an opportunity to work together and uh, to get a chance to, uh, to be part of this thing uh, with both of you and with Sean and the entire team. And, um, you know, I thought, you know, it might be kind of fun, you know, since we're wrapping up the podcast, at least this season, um, to have you reflect uh, a little bit on some highlights for, for each of you, you know, things that stood out in the various uh, conversations we've had with some of the, you know, biggest uh, uh, influencers in the world of data. Well, you know, before I answer that, I just want to want to give back to you, Adam. What a what a pleasure it's been to work with you uh, over the years, and now that Trifactor indeed part of Alteryx, you know, um, the podcast takes on sort of a life of its own, which is interesting, um, and we'll kind of see where it goes. But um, looking back, I mean, we had so many amazing guests, um, and when I think about like you know what stands out to me, it's funny enough the things that surprised me the most were things from people I've been friends with for years that I didn't know about them. So 
you know, the, the most obscure one being Stephen Hillian from Astronomer. So Stephen, I knew he had a PhD in mathematics, uh, which is unusual, frankly, in the data space, pure mathematics. What I didn't know was that he and his advisor had spent over a decade translating Greek poetry about mathematics into English while keeping the meter of the original. <laughs> and that their book was almost finally done. <laughs> like, what a crazy story. What a crazy hobby. The other one that struck me was uh, my old friend Carlos Gestrin, just in our last podcast, talking about um, his art installation and the student piece by Suan Hong that um, would use AI to decide if your drawing was art. And that was the installation. Just both of those things were like so uh, off topic and fun. Uh, and I think one of the great things about meeting amazing people is is the diversity of skills and interests they have. So it's been a super fun year meeting cool people. Yeah, and math poetry stood out in my memory as well. But I think what I'll share is along the lines of our uh, podcast catchphrase, right? Latest trends, uh, hot takes, and insights on the data industry. So maybe I'll run through those uh, in reverse. So some some insights. Um, it's surprising what's hard. So sometimes what you think is really um, complex and intellectually engaging, oh, that must be the hard part. Well, no, sometimes it's really, you know, all the, the, the devil and the details. And so um, a recurring theme, of course, is everyone has to deal with dirty data. And as Stephen Hillian and others described, you know, domain expertise is often critical to handle it properly. So I think a theme that we also touched on today is like, you know, data transformation engineering, it's really an interactive process and it's resistant to automation. Uh, and so I think you really have to, to embrace that and understand that to build the right kinds of tooling. And along the way, you know, some of those like dirty data challenges, even exceptional engineers like our guest, Mike Bostock, get bogged down wrangling date time values. So sometimes it's just, you know, you really got to get, get down and dirty with your data. In terms of hot takes, the one that really stood out for me was uh, when Hadley Wicken came and he's basically said, dual axis charts and ggplot2 it's like never over my dead body um and so the the sort of scoping decisions that we have to make um you know to, to you know sometimes um sometimes even more important than than all the functionality that we we build out to support so really kind of understand what you need to support but also what you can leave out that will keep your system simpler easier to maintain maybe easier to understand for other people to use um really important um, and then the last one is trends. Um, lots of great trends. Um, but I in particular really appreciated Moritz Stefaner's overview of the field of data visualization. Obviously, that's close to my heart. But in particular, um, how he called out how the field is overdue to engage with issues of accessibility, turning assuming everyone um, is sighted um, and sees in more or less the same way is obviously a false assumption, something we know for a while, but as a field, um, both in research and practice, only really started uh, to reckon with recently. And so I really appreciated him providing that overview and, and that point in particular. That's great. Well, we're making plans for, uh, for what's next on the podcast. Um, and we'll see when we come back just what it looks like. But um, you can expect at least more interviews with thought leaders, probably not only in data engineering, but you know more broadly, I think, as we reach out um, uh, and look at the data management, AI, visualization, computing space. Um, but uh, listeners, if you have specific questions or topics that you'd like to see us tackle, reach out to us. You can still reach us at datawranglers at trifacta.com. And on behalf of Joe Hellerstein and Adam Wilson, I want to thank our producer, Emily Valla, and the Burst Marketing Podcast team. who have done a fantastic job and really made all of this possible. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. And as always, make sure to review and subscribe to the Data Wranglers wherever you find your podcasts. The Data Wranglers podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, by Alteryx. I'm Jeff Hare. See you soon with season two.